Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Warning. This podcast involves discussions of a spooky and graphic nature not suitable for children or the faint of heart. Strong language and mature content is present. Listener discretion is advised. You have been warned. When you want to hear about the paranormal, you get the spook. Girls, true crime that makes you hypothermal with the three spooked girls. Stabby snippets will give you dreams. Tara and Jessica will make you And welcome back to another episode here on Three Spooked Girls. It is I, your co-host, Jessica. And as always, I am joined by my favorite ghoul friend, Tara. Hey, Spooksters. Today is another patron select. So it is like a stabby, but our patron, Christine, picked out this topic. And I will be covering the James Bulger murder. I'm going to say right now that this is a very triggering case, and I will go into detail when we get to the assault part. So Tara has graciously agreed, and I mean, I didn't even have to ask her that hard. She was like, I was going to do it anyway. (laughs) Um, She has agreed to put a timestamp in the show notes below. So I will get to the part and I will explain and give some pause time for people to pause it and then go and skip ahead if they don't want to hear about this particular assault that took place. So with that, I will go ahead and get started. This is the murder of James Bulger. His full name is James Patrick Bulger, and he was born on March 16th, 1990. And he was born in Liverpool, England to his parents, Denise and Ralph Bulger. The couple met when Denise was 18, and they were together for two years prior to becoming pregnant with James. James was described as a bubbly, happy toddler. He enjoyed dancing around to pop music, especially Michael Jackson, which I get. It's poppy and cute. Very 90s. Very 90s. Yeah, he was very cute. His mother said that he ran everywhere, and also one of his favorite things to do was try to make people laugh. So just an all-around, a really sweet little boy. He also went by the nickname Jamie, so I probably, depending on how I wrote it down in this, I kind of go back and forth between calling him Jamie and James. Gotcha. February 12th, 1993, Denise took James with her to the local shopping center called the New Strand Shopping Center, also known as The Strand. If you look in the resources page, there's a video, and in the video, they refer to it as the Strand. I just wanted to make sure that we were all on the same page. While they were there, they visited a butcher shop, which I was kind of like, because this is like a mall setting, and I don't know 
like the malls I'm around don't have butcher shops in them. So I was a little like, I want a butcher shop in my mall. I could do all my shopping at once. Right. So convenient. (laughs) Right. Like I remember when I was in Austria, they had grocery stores, like legit grocery stores in malls. And I thought that was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. Yeah, that definitely is. And if this has in other places in America and I just look stupid, I'm sorry. I grew up in a small town. (laughs) You're right. And I had to drive 30 minutes to grocery shop. Either way. Facts. So Denise and James went and visited a butcher shop called A.R. Tim's, and the shop was located on the first floor or the lower floor of the shopping center. Around 3.40, Denise noticed that James had wandered off and she began to panic. I think she probably got busy talking with the butcher or looking at stuff, and she probably just let go of his hand. And, you know, most kids stay pretty close to their parents. I mean, I was the kid who hid in the racks, like when we'd go to Walmart, I'd hide in like the clothing racks. Oh my God. And like, as a kid, (laughs) never fully understood why my parents would freak out until the first time I ever took my niece and nephew anywhere. Mind you, there are two of them because they're twins. But when one wandered off, I was like, where did they go? And like panicked, but they were they did the same thing and I was not happy. So I apologize to my parents after that. (laughs) So at this point in time, she's panicking. But we need to backtrack a little bit to talk about two other important people. Because on the same day on February 12th, 1993, two 10-year-old boys decided to ditch school and play hooky and hang out at the local shopping center. This is something they did often. In fact, in the video I mentioned earlier, they said that one of the boys had missed like half of his education from ditching, like from truancy. Holy shit, at 10? That's crazy. Right. And we'll get into why. The two boys were Robert Thompson and John Venables. So we'll talk about Robert first. Robert Thompson was born on August 23rd, 1982 to parents Anne, and I cannot find his father's name. I've looked high and low, but I don't know his name. I apologize. He was the fifth out of six children, so to say that the Thompsons had their hands full. And also, his nickname is Bobby. In a lot of recordings, you'll hear him being referred to as Bobby. So his home life was not very good. His father was very abusive to the entire family. Mr. Thompson would physically, emotionally, psychologically, and sexually abuse his entire family. Mr. Thompson would actually end up leaving home when Robert was about six, so in 1988. Though he left, the cycle of violence did not end, it would continue. Basically, Robert had all these brothers and they would beat on each other. And since Robert was the youngest of the boys, he would often get most of the beatings on him. And like, I mean, it gets really hard because I'm gonna be honest, like if you don't know this case, it's about two child killers who kill a child. But I mean, these kids were just like the cutest little things. And it's just, whoo, this is definitely a case of like nature versus nurture. And I will talk about that in a minute. So Anne Thompson, who was his mom, would actually become an alcoholic. That's how she decided to deal with her trauma with her ex-husband. Robert was very much the nurture versus nature. His attitude was like, monkey see, monkey do. I see violence at home. I see sexual assault at home. So this is something I can put out into the world because that's what I've been taught. I want to asterisk this right now that not everyone who goes through that situation ends up becoming a killer, but sometimes they do. John Venables was born on August 13th, 1982, and his parents were Susan and Neil Venables. Um, And if I'm saying his last name wrong, I just heard it with an accent, so (laughs) this is stuck in my head. According to most reports, John's home life wasn't a violent one. There was no evidence of violence in the home whatsoever. They were actually kind of financially comfortable. They were more like middle class, whereas the Thompsons were not, especially after Mr. Thompson left, leaving Anne to raise six kids on her own. 
At the time of February of 1993, John's parents were estranged, but they were working on reconciling. They had kind of a rocky relationship. John didn't take their separation very well at all. And Susan was actually suffering from a lot of psychiatric problems. She was overwhelmed as a parent. And when I first heard this, I was like, okay, you have three kids. I get that could be a lot of kids, but like, how are you overwhelmed? Well, in more research, I found out that two of her three children had like handicaps, like learning disabilities. So they had to go to special schools and then taking care of them was extra. So the, I think they were not high functioning is from what I'm getting. Mm-hmm. So John was actually, even though he came from a nice home, that there was no violence, John was not necessarily the nicest little boy. He was actually kicked out of a different school than he was attending with Bobby. He got kicked out for several reasons because he just had really poor behavior. Some of it was he would go around to the classroom. You know how like in elementary school, they put like paintings on the wall and stuff like that. Like they display your homework. He would go around and like pull it down and then he would cut himself with scissors himself. Oh. Mm-hmm. And then he would cut holes in his socks, which I see that because like I remember when I was a kid, like I had a friend who cut like, wait, this might actually be a family story. I remember at least hearing a story, but like I know that some people like would cut like their initials into their clothes to think that it was cool. It's not me. I didn't do it. I, I loved my clothes too much as a kid. Right. But the final straw that got him kicked out of the school was he tried to choke uh, another student with a ruler. <gasps> Oh, my God. Right? It's not like he... I mean, he had been at that door before. Let's put it that way. On February 12th, 1993, the two boys again ditched school. And they had done this before. And how they would do this... And this was recanted by a mother of another child who lived in the same neighborhood as Robert. And she said, and her son would do it too, is that they would essentially walk their kids to school see them in, and then as soon as the parents would leave, the kids would go out a different gate or climb over fences and leave. So basically they were there for like what I presume morning recess and then just like ran away. Wow. That's what they did this day. And the two of them made their way down to the New Strand Shopping Center. They hung around for a while and did a little bit of stealing. They would end up stealing various types of items. They would steal like sweets or candies. They stole a troll doll, batteries, and blue paint. And all of them, I think, put the troll doll come into play later. When Denise was panicking and looking for James, Robert and John were captured on a closed circuit TV leading what looked like a toddler out of the shopping center. And this was about 3.42. So she realizes that her kid is missing and like two minutes later they're caught on camera. The toddler on the video was in fact little Jamie Bulger. Then Robert and John led James a quarter of a mile away to Leeds and Liverpool Canal. When I looked this up online, I wanted to see how far it was just to confirm it. And it was like 47 miles. And then I realized that it was like took me from the shopping center to the head of the canal and not like the closest point to the canal. You're like, what the fuck? I was like, that is not a quarter of a mile. Who lied? (laughs) And how did they like how did... I can't walk 47 miles. Oh, God. Yeah, that's crazy. (laughs) I was like, how did anyone walk? But yeah, no. But they were saying when I like zoomed in, it's about a quarter of a mile. So they took him down to the canal. And it said at this time, Robert made little James kneel down next to the canal, hoping that he would fall in and drown. This is what they told police later. And when this didn't happen, they picked James up and then dropped him on his head. Mm. 
And then they hit him in the face. The boys would later confess that they talked about pushing James into the canal, but they didn't. Then Robert and John took James for another walk, and they walked for about a two and a half miles with a crying and bleeding two-year-old. And you must be thinking, how did they go unnoticed? Well, they fucking didn't. 38 people saw the three children walking. Of the 38 people, only two people stopped and challenged the boys. And guess what? This was not the boy's recollection. This was people telling, like, oh, I saw them. I just didn't do anything. I would like to put out there this statement. And people can at me all they want. You 38 people, because the two who tried and failed still failed. Um, You are super responsible for this happening. Oh, yeah. God. Because you're an adult. I'm sorry. Like, if I walked up and I saw a bleeding two-year-old, and even if, because the boys used this, they said this. They were like, oh, he's our brother. We're taking him home. He hit his head. I would have been like, you know what we should do? We should go and find, like, an emergency vehicle. We'll get a local shop to call it, because this is probably before 1993, before cell phones. Right. We'll call emergency to come and take a look at the little boy, and then we'll call your mom. I would have taken the child from the 10-year-old. Yeah. Like, I maybe I'm really ballsy but like that, but I would have. I'm the type of person, like, I think something bad is happening to a kid. I won't leave the area. My husband gets very nervous that one day I'm going to get killed by someone. There's literally been times where I've, like, we were in a parking lot and this guy was, like, spanking his kid with a belt. And I don't mean spanking, like, pop, pop, pop. But, like, I was probably 80 feet away and could hear the slap of the belt. And I started screaming. And Thomas was like, you are going to get us killed one of these days because one day that person's not going to care who you are. And I was like, no, I just wanted people to pay attention. Like if I'm shouting, people are going to look and be like, oh, shit. Yeah. The guy stopped and um, took his kid back into church. Oh, my God. Right. I wasn't attending the church. I was just nearby the church getting ice cream in the morning. (laughs) Okay, but anyway. Oh, and then the other lie they told the other person was that they'd found this lost little boy and they were taking him to the police station. I'm sorry, that adult, why are you not going, okay, I'll go with you? Right, exactly. And then it's just like, those people who did nothing, this, ooh, I hate the bystander effect with this thinking, oh, it's fine, whatever, like, just pushing it off, like... Mm -mm. Or I don't want to get involved. I'm busy. I don't want to interrupt my day. Someone else will. Well, obviously no one else did. I mean, two people did, but they didn't. Like, I'm sorry. Like, even if someone were to tell, like, if a little kid, like a 10-year-old kid were to look me in the face and say to me, oh, no, we're going home. I'd be like, okay, I'll walk with you and I want to talk to your parents. I want to make sure this kid doesn't bleed to death. I think I should be responsible here. But no. Now, here's the other thing. The boys took James to a pet store and the pet store owner kicked him out with a bleeding, crying toddler. I fucking can't. Because I think they took him in there to like look at puppies to like calm him down. And then they were like, you got to get out of here. It's like, no, you should have been like, what's happening? Right. It's not like, I mean, even if the kid was their age, they should still check on him. But it's a baby. It's a baby. Like, what the fuck? Right. So eventually they made their way to the village of Walton. They even walked straight past the police station. I don't know if the police saw him. It's noted that they walked past the police station in the village. And they made their way to the train tracks near Walton and Anfield Station. So this is where I'm going to say right now is where if you are not going to be okay listening to what happened to this little boy, you should definitely pause and check the timestamp and go to that. So if you've stayed with us at this point, please, please keep that in mind. It's going to get a little brutal. 
and just know that your mental health is more important than you hearing a story. Mm -hmm. So once the boys arrived, they began to torture James pretty immediate. One of them took out the paint can that they had, that they had stolen. It was blue humbrel modeling paint, and they threw it into James's left eye. Then they began to kick him and stomp on him. They found some bricks and stones that were nearby. And while being interviewed by detectives, John confessed they had thrown the bricks at him to knock him down and to keep him from getting back up. But when they asked him why the two boys wanted him to stay down, John replied, and I quote, I don't know. I wanted him dead properly. Jesus. Yeah, don't fucking get it twisted with this kid, guys. Like, he's adorable looking, but mm -mm. They took the batteries and they put it in his mouth and in his anus, but then they removed them. They weren't actually found there. They also dismembered his genitalia by forcibly pushing back his foreskin, because this is Europe and circumcision is not as widely done over there as it is here in the States. And then after all of the kicking, all of the brick throwing and stone throwing, the final thing that they did to him at this location is they dropped a 22-pound iron railway fish plate bar on top of him. And this resulted in 10 skull fractures. And what this bar is, if you've ever like looked at a railroad track, you know how there's that like weird bar that's kind of like up against the tracks and has like the four bolts in it. Mm -hmm. It's that bar. Yeah. And I'm trying to think, could a 10 year old pick that up by themselves? I mean, two of them. Right. I meant without each other. Like, could one? Oh, yeah, yeah. Probably not. Yeah. But they're unsure if at this time James was still alive. The pathologist kind of thinks he was. Oh, no. I know, right? Like, I was like, I really wanted him not to be at this point. Like, I know that sounds fucked up, but like... So he wouldn't suffer. I get what you're saying. Yeah. Right. Oof. At this point, they carried him up the banks of the railroad tracks, and they weighted his head down in rubble and, like, to conceal him because they laid his bodies across the tracks because they figured if a train came through and ran him over, nobody would know what they did. But that's not how trains work. No, I'm just appalled that these thoughts are coming from 10-year-olds. This is serial killer level shit. This is insane. Mm Mm-hmm. Eventually, a train would come and sever James's body in half, but the pathologist did say that James was dead before that did happen. Okay, so those of you who are just rejoining us because of the timestamp, welcome back, and we're going to continue on. So the police was now looking for a missing child. They didn't think the child was dead. They just think the child is missing. And they thought, I think it was kind of described that teenagers took him. So they started looking for teenagers. Denise Bolger did a press conference where she was asking for her son to be returned safely to her, and they just want him back. But on February 14th, the day of love and warm feelings, there was a group of teenagers, but ultimately a 13-year-old boy named Terrence Riley and his brother would find James's body and report it. Now, Terrence, here's a little side note about Terrence. He actually, I think, had extreme PTSD from this, and he got into a life of drugs, ultimately selling drugs. He has said that this event, finding James's body, actually put him on this like downward spiral. So they ruined more lives than they thought. Right. Oh, man. Forensic pathologist Alan Williams said that James suffered 42 injuries total and not a single one can be isolated in his death. Though, again, he was dead before the train struck him. Things began to escalate very quickly. 
So, of course, there's like a teenager took him and they pulled in about 60 children and teenagers for questioning. And the community came out in support of the Bulgers. They left flowers near where James's body was found, the railroad track embankment and all that area. And I mean, these people got mob-like because one of the teens that was called in for questioning, his family had to flee town. Mind you, he was called in and questioned and then cleared. So like cleared, not guilty, not pursued. They had to flee town because the amount of death threats they were getting. That's terrible. Jesus. Well, I mean, a two-year-old died. Well, no, no, no. I get it. But it's just like, I feel bad for the, because he was innocent. You know what I mean? Like, I just feel bad for him. Right. This community was a thousand percent outraged. They were like, we're going to fuck shit up. How could you not? Right? Yeah, a two-year-old, what the fuck? They can't do anything to defend themselves at all. Exactly. But the good thing, because the media coverage was kind of like perpetuating this, and I think this is what was getting people really hyped up, which rightfully so, people should be on the lookout for this. But it did do some good because a local woman saw the photo and recognized John and knew that that particular day that he had been cutting school and playing hooky with Robert Thompson. And I think this is the moment, like, the police were, like, looking them up and they're like, they're 10. They were thinking, like, the lowest age was, like, 13. And suddenly they're like, they're fucking 10. So this led them to go pick them up. Robert was picked up by Detective Sergeant Phil Robert and was taken to the Merseyside Police. It is also noted that Robert only lived a few hundred yards from where James's body was found. So like pretty localized. So he knew because in that documentary I watched, Detective Sergeant Phil Roberts says he remembers kneeling down to get to like James's level. And he said, you know, I'm here about James's murder. And he said, yes. At first I was like, that's a weird thing. And then they were like, oh, he only lives a few hundred yards. So I was like, oh, that could make sense because he's like so close. But no, no, no. And John was also picked up, but he was taken to a different station. It was the Mullane police station and they were questioned separately. The boys were questioned over a series of interviews to get them to talk. So it wasn't like how, because obviously this is happening in England. Obviously in like England, they're a little nicer to people. Unlike us who would put a child in an interrogation room for like 12 hours straight, they broke this up. They like, you know, tried to talk to them and everything like that. It was said that John broke first. In fact, he was said to be very like, his emotions were all over the place. Like he would be talking to them and all of a sudden he'd become like completely distraught and he would even like hug the police officers and then he'd hug his parents because both of his parents were there with him. It was said that he actually got like really upset and like kind of attacked his dad when they started talking about some of the injuries that they had caused and he was denying it. He got really mad at his dad. But after a while, they kind of played that whole like, well, Robert's telling us this and they were telling Robert, John's telling us that and John broke first. And basically how it was is they were like, look, your shoe pattern matches injuries on James. We know it's you. And so he broke and he basically like confessed to it. And then Robert or Bobby was just more concerned. He kept saying like, I'm going to get all the blame for this. Like, I think he kind of thought that John was like selling him out and that he was going to take the full blame. Which is interesting because, like, if you look at their two dynamics, John is obviously, like, nature. Like, if you want to talk about nature versus nurture, John had, like, kind of a more comfortable life. This wasn't his thing. But, like, obviously he was violent. And Robert was, like, taught, this is how you interact with people. You're fucking violent. 
So that caught my attention, like the psychology of it, of of it being like these two dualities that my thought is if they had never come together, would they have ever done this? I got to the point where I was like, oh, yeah, John was definitely the leader, but John's like attorney or as they're called in England, solicitor. He basically said that Robert seemed like the Pied Piper of all of this. I really think it was just the two of them hyping up off of each other. Oh, definitely. Mm -hmm. One of the things that kind of makes me think twice about Robert like being the leader of this is this statement. Once Robert confessed and they were basically like taking him into custody and everything, he asked the police if they had taken James to the hospital to get him to come alive again. And I mean, like, part of me was like, oh, my God, that's so sad because he thinks that there's hope. But like the other half of me is like he brutally killed a two year old. And confessed to part of it. So I'm like, "Mm, no, thank you. And on February 20th of 1993, the two were officially charged with the murder of James Bulger. But due to the outrage in the community, they could only be known as Child A, which is Robert, and Child B, which is John. And the reason they had to be known as like Child A and Child B is the judge was like, even though that they're guilt, like they've confessed to this, we kind of need to give them a little privacy. And also like, so their families weren't like being murdered as well, you know, attacked, death threats, those things. They were so young that they couldn't be, like, in a jail proper, so they were actually put in, like, secured units by themselves, which is probably very scary to be 10 and locked away. When the boys first appeared in court on February 22nd, there were upwards of 500 protesters at the South Sefton Magistrates Court. The trial began on November 1st, 1993. Obviously, they had confessed, so they didn't really have to do much investigation into it. And the child was being handled and they were being tried as adults. They, at this point, are now 11. Mm -hmm. But it was sad because the way that they, they have these things called docks and the boys in like regular chairs couldn't see over them. So they had to get like special heightened chairs for them. And their parents couldn't sit with them like they couldn't be in the little box with them. But they were they were basically right behind them and they could like actually like touch their parents, if that makes sense. Mm hmm. The boys tried to deny the murder, abduction, and attempted abduction because, hold the phone, they had that day tried to abduct another two-year-old, but the mother had caught them. Oh, my God. So, like, to say that this was, like, some random weird thing that just happened, like, no, they, they had tried. So, because of the order that the judge had put on about, like, concealing their identity, it meant that no pictures could be taken in the court. So, there's a lot of drawings of them with the back of their head. So basically it came down to the reporters couldn't give their names. They couldn't say anything. So they'd be like child A, child B. And they would basically say like child A seems sad today or child A cried today. All they could do is like report on their demeanor and that was it. And they couldn't really report on the crime itself and like what happened. But how could two 10 or 11 year olds be tried as adults? This was challenged because there is this thing called Dolly and Capex, which is the age of the criminal responsible is the age below which a child is deemed incapable of committing a criminal offense. Basically, it means like, can the kid tell right or wrong? But lead prosecution counsel Richard Henriquez, QC, rebutted this successfully. I mean, at this point, you're looking at this as like, hello, they 
brutally murdered a two-year-old. The boys were held to be or found to be or held to be capable of mischievous discretion, meaning they did know right from wrong. And this is something that like triggered me because this, okay, I've told you guys that my dad or my parents were very religious and I grew up in a very religious home. And my dad taught Sunday school for years. And he taught like, I want to say like fourth and fifth graders, which is about this age, right? Here in the States. And I really started thinking about the thing that my dad used to tell his Sunday school class. He used to call it like the meaning of life or like how to live a good life. And he would say it like at the end, or he would say probably say godly life, but like how to do it. And really, he said that life boiled down to knowing this truth. And I think it applies in the situation is knowing right from wrong and choosing to do right. That's what makes you a good person. And my dad taught me that as growing up is like, if you're ever faced with two choices, and one is clearly the like, you know, what's wrong, pick the right one, even if it's hard tell you like one thing about growing up in a Christian household, they did preach that like right decisions are going to be hard sometimes. But I think it, you know, it makes you a little better. Yeah. Makes you more accountable, you know? Right. I think that's, yeah, if anything, that's what it definitely taught me. So I think that applied here is that these boys did know it was wrong. Mm -hmm. A child psychologist, Ellen Vizard, it's spelled like lizard, but with a V instead of an L. (laughs) She said basically Robert knew right from wrong in this situation, but he also was suffering from PhD. So there might be a little bit of a gray area, but it was definitely a possibility that he understood it. And Susan Bailey, who was the psychiatrist who interviewed John, said he definitely knew right from wrong. John was described to be like a well-mannered person. Like John is like a mini Ted Bundy, in my opinion. I was about to say that. I was about to fucking say that. Oh, mm-hmm. the boys didn't speak during the trial because like you couldn't put an 11 year old on the stand. Um, most of the evidence was the 20 hours worth of recordings taken by the police with the boys. And I just want to note that the parents were present. They had a parental unit there every time the kids were interviewed. The evidence was also presented with bricks. There were 27 of them, stones that contained DNA evidence, James's underwear, and then the iron bar that we talked about, that fish plate bar. The pathologist, Alan Williams, spoke for 33 minutes going through meticulously all of the injuries. He went into detail of all the injuries of James, which I'm sitting there thinking that Denise and Ralph are sitting in the fucking audience of this listening. And I I don't know. It's a parent. Not a parent, but I don't think even if I was a parent, I could handle that. Mm -mm, No way. I think I would be like, I'm going to excuse myself. Mm -hmm. The trial lasted 23 days. I'm not 100% sure if it was like all 23 days they were in court, but like that's the time span. Because on November 24th, 1993, Robert Thompson and John Venables became the youngest convicted murderers in the 20th century. That's crazy. Right. Mr. Justice Moreland said that the boys' crimes were unparably unparalleled evil and barbarity. In my judgment, your conduct was both cunning and very wicked. Perfectly said. Again, a little Ted Bundy. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, wow, did he did he like read that? It's like I'm going to outspeak that judge. And then he sentenced them to be detained at Her Majesty's pleasure, which is legal jargon referring to the indeterminate or undetermined length of time. Basically, it's like, whatever. And to note that if there was a king on the throne, it would be his majesties or they their majesties. We don't know what's coming next. But the judge did suggest or recommend to keep the length of custody. And this was his exact quote, very, very many years to come. And then the same judge was like, okay, I'm going to lift the restrictions now. So they gave their names out. Everyone knew it was Robert Thompson and John Venables. I'm sure people knew because like these boys just disappeared. 
if you were smart and you put two to two together, you'd be like, ah, they were here one day. And then the next day they just weren't. (laughs) And then he gave his minimum time suggested by the judge was eight years. So because they were 11, that would put them at what, 19? I think it was actually like it would put them at 18 because it's 10 years from their arrest. But 10 years was suggested by the Lord Chief Justice, which is the head of the Judiciary of England and Wales and the President of Courts of England and Wales. They got such fancy ass titles. They do. They do. We have stupid titles. Alexander Hamilton was right. We should have been fancier. Anyway, so this would mean if it was 10 years, it would put them being released in 2003 at the age of 20, which the public did not fucking like. They were like not having this shit. And I was thinking, you know, they're going to call for a life sentence. Well, they signed a petition. 280,000 people signed a petition and the son handed it to the Lord Chief Justice and was like, hey, we don't want just 10 years. So they upped it to 15 years. Yeah, I see that look of disappointment on your face, which would put it at 2008 and being released when they were 25 years of age. So trial over case over, right? (laughs) No. I can tell by your tone. No. (laughs) (laughs) No. Trying to be like trial over case over. (laughs) Moving on. Um, The boys served their time in jail slash prison, you would think, but that's not the case. They were sent to these care centers because children could not go to jail. And basically, like, they were, like, children's detention centers. They just called them care centers. Yeah, I was going to ask, is it, like, a juvie type of thing? Makes sense. Mm. Mm-mm. No? No. Oh, am I about to get more pissed? Ugh. I literally wrote, rant about how nice they were. Mm. That's literally what I wrote. This is this is my thought. No, no. So in the if you watch the documentary I watch, they spend about three thousand. I'm pretty sure it's about three thousand dollars a week. I don't know if it's per child, but it's like three thousand dollars a week to keep this facility going. Mm, hold the phone. And they're not big facilities, but um, they interviewed someone who knew Robert while he was in, because he was also in this detainment center when he was thirteen. Robert had a fucking PlayStation. What? What the fuck? Wow. He had a personal computer in his room. Not everyone had this, but he could do his study because he needed to do his studies in his room. Because there was the fact that, like, when they went in, they did tell them to keep their identities, like, hidden. So they went by, like, another name. This kid said that in Bobby's room or in Robert's room, he had posters of his favorite soccer team. His bed covering the comforter was of his favorite soccer team. And he had like, you know, things to draw with. I mean, this is the way they pitched it at first was like they go in and then within hours they realize they have no freedom and the adults are taking it. But then they like also cut like two minutes later, kids are fucking jumping on trampolines. And they have, like, their own soccer pitch. And they have, like, basketball courts. Maybe it was a rugby pitch. I don't know. They have all these nice-ass things in this amenity. And the really, the guy that's in charge of this one that they're interviewing, it was not, not one that Robert and John were in. They may have been in at one time. But basically, it's like camp, but stricter rules. And here's the other thing with that. There's this thing that gets in there called mobility. What is mobility, Jessica? Well, Tara, I'm glad you asked. Basically, what it means is their parents can come and get them and take them the fuck out for a time. Like, they could go on adventures in the outside world. Stop it. Not kidding. Oh, my God. I knew that's I knew that's what you were going to fucking say. There was, in a different country, uh, there was a case of these kids. They were, like, teenagers, though. Killed their parents. 
for insurance money or for some money. And yeah, same thing. They could come in and out for like holidays and shit. And I'm like, what the fuck? Right. I get their kids, but they still murdered. Mm-hmm. They're still murderers. Right. Like the guy that was in there with him, with Robert, said that like when his mom would come visit, he would be allowed to go to this like education part of the building, which had like a little kitchen where they taught them to cook in. Because granted, this is supposed for like most kids, this is supposed to be like a rehabilitation center. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's like for kids who are like gangbanging or drugging, I don't know, skip. Apparently these kids should have been in there for skipping school, though. You know, like those type of kids. And it's really to show them that like with responsibility, which I get the basic premises of this. If you show kids that if they act right and they do right, there's rewards to it. It can help put a more positive thing versus like the American judicial system, which is like you throw kids in a cell and then they just get like deeper and deeper into it. This is about like rehabilitating kids. I figure it a lot like that one camp that Dr. Phil sends people to, but like without horses. However, for John and Robert, this is different because the two of them are child murderers. Right. Yeah, it's just crazy. Like, and that's the point. So while they were there, they got therapy, they got rehabilitation stuff, they got an education. So they still went to school, which I think is good. Even if they were going to stay in prison forever, they should get an education. They were 10 when they went in. There's a lot of shit they should have learned. But like I said, had to keep their identity secret. John's parents would visit him regularly. And he was at a place called Red Bank. And he was there for the majority of the time. I think Robert may have moved around a bit. And he was at a place called Barton Mass. And his mom was said to visit him three times a week. I thought it was interesting that they were like, John's parents would visit him regularly and Robert's mom would visit him three times a week. I'm like, oh, so not that often. Got it. Both boys were treated for PTSD and it was said that John would wake up at night with like night terrors and like reliving what happened, but like understanding what he did. And legally, this case isn't over either. On March 15th of 1999, the courts in Strasbourg ruled that trying the children as an adult was a violation of the Article 6 of the European Human Rights, which is basically that they have a right to a fair trial and they did not have a right to a fair trial because they were children being tried as adults, which I thought was funny because our Sixth Amendment is the right to a fair trial. And I was like, oh, we just copied it. (laughs) (laughs) It stated that the public trial process of an adult court must be regarded in the case of an 11-year-old child as severely intimidating procedure. And that was overruled, which means they were up for an appeal. And so in June of 2001, the parole board met because they had less than six months to the end of their term because they went back to like eight years. And it was ruled that the boys were no longer considered a threat. No, I know. You're about to get pissed off more. I look at those. I look, guys, you couldn't see it, but Tara gave me dagger eyes. And I'm like, I didn't do it. It's 2001. I was 15. I didn't do this. Oh, God. Just saying. So basically, um, they were released a few weeks later and they were given new identities and moved to secret locations. Basically, they witness protected them. The terms of the release is that they were not to contact each other or the Bulgers. And they could not visit anywhere near the Merseyside area or the region, basically where the murder took place. And if they didn't do, if they didn't comply with any of this, they would go to prison, like prison prison, not like, you know. Not camp? Not day camp prison. So what happened to the Bulgers? Well, they had another son and then they ended up divorcing in 1995. And Denise would go on to marry Stuart Fergus and they would have two sons. Ralph would also remarry and, and, and have three daughters. In March of 2008, there was a memorial garden planted at the school that James would have attended in his memory. 
Now, let's get back to the boys who got released, because they were, like, around 17, almost 18 when they got released, right? People tried to find them. Not surprised. And I'm not kidding when I say this. Like, you should read the wiki page, because they will go into detail about, like, all the people who tried to fucking find these people and that they got their justice. They would go to jail, because there was literally, like... If it's a protection order and you release the identity, like you're putting someone's life in danger. And in all intents and purposes, these two boys had been considered rehabilitated. Right. And I mean, they were putting up like pictures of them. Oh. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't just like they were putting up like one picture, like they'd found the person, right? No, it was like they had put this like spread of a myriad of people like any of these people could be John and Robert, which was dangerous because if those people on that list or on those pictures were not them. Right. That puts their lives at risk. Right. Um, there was also a Facebook page that was made for a short period of time. And then this person got locked up, thank God, because someone started a Facebook group called What Happened to Jamie Bulger Was Fucking Hilarious. <gasps> oh, my God. Mm-hmm. People are just completely crazy. At one point in time, someone had located Robert and his new identity and told Denise where he was and she was going to go confront him, which I think is okay. On one level, I think Robert did rehabilitate himself because there's not a lot known about him after. But I think it's kind of fucked up because like if he had been seen with her, he would have been in a violation of his parole and he did not seek her out. But it was said that, like, she saw him and became paralyzed with rage and just could not confront him. But unlike Robert, there is a lot known about what happened to John after his release, because we're about to go down the clusterfuck that is John's life. Oh, God. So shortly before his release at the age of 17, John was said to have had sex with a female member of the staff at Red Bank. But I did check. I looked. I asked my handy dandy Alexa what the age of consent was in England. And she told me 16. Okay. So apparently it was legal, but still very fucked up. Yeah. And he wouldn't stay out of trouble for very long. He would get into fights or what they call a phrase where basically he was committing these like crazy frenzy fight. Um, He did drugs. He drank a lot. According to his like parole officer and probation officer, he would just like sit around and like play video games and surf the internet. And now is where we get into the fucked up part. On June 21st, 2010, he was charged with the possession and distribution of indecent images of children. No. God. A.K.A. child porn. Yeah. He had 57 images. He pled guilty and got two years. But that's not what I want to read you. Uh, (laughs) Wait for it, guys. So... I'm reading this from the wiki page because this is the wiki page for this is actually very good. I have a lot of other articles, too, but the wiki page did an amazing job. So whoever put this together, top notch. At the court hearing, it emerged that it says Venables, but John posed in an online chat room as a 35 year old Donnie Smith, a married woman from Liverpool who boasted about abusing her eight year old daughter in the hope of obtaining further child pornography. Fucking disgusting. Right. And basically, like, it was kind of like, okay, shit's like weird. Maybe he's so he goes to prison and then he's in prison for two years. He gets out in September of 2013. But because of this, on May 4th, and this is also when, so he got arrested and then he was charged, right? So on May 4th of 2011, Basically, someone spilled who he really was. Like, they busted his new identity. So he had to be given another new identity. 
And then he got gets out of prison in 2013, which is awesome, apparently, on September 3rd. And it wouldn't be too much longer, just four more years, and our boy would be back in the prison system. And this time, it would be for possession of child abuse imagery. Oh, no. Uh-huh. And basically... On February 7th, 2018, he pled guilty to possession of indecent images of children for the second time, and he pled guilty via video link to three charges of indecent images of children possessing of a pedophile manner. It's bad. And he was sentenced to three years. So unbelievable. However, he was getting out soonish, or he probably was, but then COVID hit. On May 4th of 2019, Ralph Bolger, uh, James's father, basically ended up losing. He was challenging the lifelong anonymity that had been put out. And he just wanted it on John, not on Robert. Because I do think that Robert really did rehabilitate himself. I'm not saying he was a good person. I don't know what he did, but he's just not in trouble. Right. But basically, the judge had to hold that if he became known, his life would be in danger. And here's the thing. As much as we want vengeance for this, the justice system can't put knowingly put someone in danger. They just can't. It's not nice and it's not good. But in late June of 2019, it was reported that British officials were considering resettling John in either Canada, Australia, or New Zealand due to the high cost behind protecting his anonymity. So I was like, okay, that fucking sucks. But that's kind of where that leaves us at this point in time. You know, this case, my parents, I knew, I've known about this case pretty much since it happened um, when it became like a sensational worldwide thing of these two 10-year-olds being convicted of murder. And I was telling Tara about this. I have known about this forever because when I was a kid, my parents used to tell me not to trust adult men. You know, like, because that's what people, that was a stranger danger thing, you know? A man was going to come abduct you. And my parents always told me, like, if I was somewhere and I wasn't with them and I didn't feel safe, like, go with other children or go with an adult female. Which we do know that both of those options can suck. Can't even do that. Yeah. Uh Uh-uh. And then when this happened, my parents, they sat me, and I I don't know if they sat my older brother down, but I know they sat me down, and they really talked to me about I needed to really pay attention to people I was with. I mean, granted, I wasn't a two-year-old, but I was definitely under 10. Like, I... I'm four years younger than these boys that committed this crime. And they were basically telling me, like, you cannot trust people if you have a bad feeling and definitely never walk off with anyone. So it's definitely a tale. I mean, I think that that's the message I'm going to definitely teach my kids is like, you don't ever walk away from your parent. You find a parent. And if you do somehow get separated because it happens that you find an adult that's working someplace that has a security camera. Yeah, for sure. So that's going to wrap this episode up. Again, this was a patron select and it was requested by Christine. If you would like a patron select episode, join our Patreon for $10 or higher. You get to pick an episode in the true crime or paranormal world and we will talk about it. So with that, I'm going to close this and probably try to scrub it from my memory. But we love you guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.